Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you today. Holidays are not a great time to get sick. And, fortu and fortunately, I seldom get sick. But I remember one holiday years ago that I caught something and really got sick. And it's funny, when I get sick, I usually make up for lost time. So there's sort of a balance in the universe. But boy, I was really sick. And it, when you are sick, as you might think about it, when you, if you think in hindsight, having been sick, we all have, and you're forced to stop, it kind of throws a, a, a wrench, a much-needed wrench, in the works of our productivity. Because <clears throat> a lot of you, like me, are people that love to check boxes. Isn't it fun to check boxes? You feel like you're making progress. You don't get to check a lot of boxes when you're sick. But what you do get to do is think. You, give, you are given the blessing of time to just reflect a little bit. And in a sense, if you think about it, the holidays give us that, um, it forces us to downshift. Nobody answers your emails. The stores are closed, at least most of them are. And you have, you have even a culture, in a sense, that forces you to slow down. And I've discovered, in fact, I actually took the time to be productive when I was sick this last time and wrote down several things that I learned from being sick. So let me share just a few of them with you. First of all, we realize how weak we really are. You know, you can exercise regularly, you can eat right, you can try to get enough rest, and shake the hand, the unwashed hand, of one infected individual, and whammo, a virus slips in and takes down your whole body for days. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, but we are also amazingly vulnerable to weakness. The second thing I learned is that we realize that the world still turns without us. This is the one I hate. <laughs> because I got sick during a time when I was supposed to do an interview with Chuck for Insight for Living. And uh, you know what? They did it without me. And it went just fine. And I realized that I am not God's gift to my job. My job is God's gift to me. Third, we realize the blessing of good health. And this one's easy but obvious. And that is uh, it, what a blessing it is to have good health. And you learn that when you don't have good health. I think about when Jesus healed people. When Jesus healed people, it was not just a mere act of mercy. A lot of times he did it as a sign that indicated, here's what it's going to be like in the kingdom that I'm offering. The kingdom that I'm offering is going to be like this. And then he would make blind people see. Dead people would rise. Uh, sick people, lame people could walk. So getting sick re gives us a reminder of what it's going to be like or what we have to look forward to in the kingdom of God. Now, obviously, getting sick has downsides, too. 
but the upsides are the gift of perspective. Well, the, my talk this morning is not about being sick, but it is about the one simple word that helps us to be grateful, and that's perspective. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to take a break from 1 Peter here as we look at during this Thanksgiving week and talk about gratitude. You have a whole, whole morning of it now, talking about being thankful. Deuteronomy 6. You probably know the context of Deuteronomy. At the end of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, uh, God had taken them the long way around the barn, as it were. Instead of going up into the promised land from the south, he took them all the way down to the Gulf of Aqaba, down to Elat, and crossed over into what is now modern Jordan, and then took them all the way up on the east side of the Jordan River to where now they are across from Jericho. And they are across from Jericho in an area, in a big flat area called the Plains of Moab. If you've ever been to Israel, or maybe if you just are familiar with the map of Israel, you've got the Dead Sea, and the Jordan River flows into the Dead Sea. And on the east side of the Jordan River, right above the Dead Sea, is a large flat area. And Jericho consumes most of it today. But in back in, well, not that side of the Jordan River, but the large flat area on the west side of the Jordan River is Jericho. And on the east side of the Jordan River is a large area that was where, called the Plains of Moab, where the Hebrews camped. And while they camped there, Moses wrote and delivered the book of Deuteronomy. It was a great um, giving of the law for the second time. And at the end of Deuteronomy, we know that Moses ascended a mount that was right there uh, above the plains of Moab called Mount Nebo. And Moses got his first and last and only look at the promised land just before he died. But before he died, Moses delivered this great sermon, as it were, the whole book of Deuteronomy. And we're just going to look at a portion of it here in Deuteronomy 6 that gives us a good principle of application of perspective. Deuteronomy 6, let's look at verse 10. Start at verse 10. The Lord says, Then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you great and splendid cities which you did not build, and houses full of all good things which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant, and you eat and are satisfied. Now, they don't have any of this yet. This is all what's coming. It's all across the river. As soon as you cross that river, Jordan, this is what's waiting for you. You get to move into model homes. The Canaanites have graciously worked hard for you to put all these homes together. You're going to conquer them and kill them and live in their houses. This, is, this was the plan. And the Lord tells them, this is what's going to happen when you cross over. You are going to get to live in the land promised four centuries earlier to Abraham, 
Isaac, and Jacob. And you're going to live in, and he mentions several things. Look at these, great and splendid cities. Now, let's lift the timeless principle from that and think about your city, great and splendid. I don't know if you live in Frisco or Dallas or um, great little Aubrey, Texas, where we live, but we live in great and splendid cities. They, we really do. All you've got to do is leave the country for a little while, and you realize America is really a pretty good place to live. Hewn cisterns. This is another one. Uh, when's the last time you turned on your faucet and nothing came out? Pretty rare, isn't it? We turn our faucets on and it's clean water. Any temperature you want. And it's right there in our homes. No longer got to walk out to the outhouse. You just walk into the other room. What a blessing. Hewn cisterns. This is what they were moving into. Also, vineyards and olive trees. This is basically our grocery stores. Now think about all the things in the grocery store when we go in there and we buy them. Uh, none of these things, it was true for the Hebrews and it's true for us that none of these things they obtained by themselves. The Lord's point here is it's all given to you because he repeats which you did not. You notice that repetition uh, where he says, houses full of good things, which you did not fill, and hewn cisterns, which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees, which you did not plant, and yet you get to eat and are satisfied. It's similar with us. When we walk into Kroger or whatever your grocery store is, there's nothing in there we grew. I mean, we just walk in and it's right there, ready to go. What a blessing. Huge blessing. Moses is giving them a great perspective on what's coming. It's easy to forget that. And that's why he tells them in verse 12, the warning of a nation's prosperity's greatest temptation. Verse 12, then watch yourself that you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. Boy, what a great perspective. First of all, he says you're about to go into a place where all this is just going to be handed to you. And once you do, then, he says, verse 12, then, once you're there, now here's what you do. Watch yourself. Yourself. Because the temptation is going to be to forget the Lord. The Lord's the one that gave it. He's the reason we have all that we have, all the physical things, not to mention the spiritual blessings that we haven't even mentioned. Don't forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. I don't, there's probably not a one of us here who have been brought out of a house of slavery in the sense of like the Egyptians uh, did to the Hebrews. But we can immediately transfer this to the, um, uh, the principle, like Paul does in Romans 6, of slavery to sin. The Lord's brought us out of that. He really has. And we were as helpless in that state as the Hebrews were in Egypt. 
if the Lord had not intervened in a miraculous way and provided the Passover lamb, we too would still be slaves to sin. You see, Moses warned his people that the greatest danger from God's blessings is to forget God. There's a danger in blessings. Blessings are great, but they come with a danger. And that is, you start to take it for granted. It's an entitlement. And it's not. It's a blessing. And the temptation is to forget the Lord. Sometimes our blessings can get piled so high that it's tough to see around them. It's tough to see the past. Blessings are ours in abundance, and it tempts us to forget God. The very fact that Moses wrote Deuteronomy, you know, remember Deuteronomy, the, the word Deuteronomy, the title, uh, the, du- the duo part at the beginning we know means two or second, and namas means law. It's the second law. It's the giving of the law for the second time. Much of what is in Deuteronomy is in uh, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, and some of Numbers as well. It's rep- it's repetition, but it's repetition for a new generation that needs to hear it fresh. I love that the Lord did that because the principle then goes throughout all of Scripture and all it's all the way to us that we need to hear it fresh, that we need to not get ho hum about the blessings of God. But we need to stop. We need to downshift. We need that wrench thrown in the the works of our productivity for a little bit and think about the blessings. These truths were great reminders for Israel. And, you know, it was a great reminder to Israel also, and in a sense it was a mild rebuke to Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh. Because Reuben, Gad, and half Manasseh, if you'll remember, decided, you know what, we don't really want to cross the Jordan. We'll just stay over here on the east side. They saw they had, they had herds, and they saw that there was lush grass there on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and they just decided, we'll just settle here. And the Lord allowed them to do that. That wasn't his plan. It's not the promised land. But, uh, and history shows what a bad idea that was. They literally settled on second best rather than wait for God. What God wants to give us is always better than what what we want him to give us. Moses wrote the book of Deuteronomy here in the plains of Moab, right there in the shadow of Mount Nebo, to remind Israel of the essential role of perspective and of contentment. Contentment is hard. Envy is easy. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to envy and how hard it is to be content? For some reason, we really tend to envy others, big time. Whether it's their cars, their careers, their spouses, their houses, or even their hair. (laughs) Envy. (laughs) It wraps its tentacles around our heart, doesn't it? Well, not your hair, sir, but... It's true. No matter what season of life we're in, we always figure that it's the next season or the past season that was better, rather than looking at where we are right now. 
Listen to what Solomon wrote. Just listen. You don't need to turn to Ecclesiastes 4.4. It's easy enough to remember. Ecclesiastes 4.4 says this. And I saw that all labor and all achievements spring from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Boy, what great insight. All labor and all achievement spring from man's envy of his neighbor. Envy as opposed to contentment. What's funny is if envy is our problem, getting what we've envied doesn't satisfy us. Have you ever noticed? It's like eating a bag of potato chips. You eat one and you've got to eat the next one. I mean, if it wasn't, if you ate a, a, a half, if, if it was low-fat chips, you, you'd eat the whole bag. You can't just drink one Coke, can you? You drink Coke, it makes you even thirstier. It's a vicious cycle. I like to think about Adam in, in the garden, Adam and Eve. If you think about what the Lord told Adam in the garden, it was amazingly gracious. You may eat from any tree, in fact, every tree of the garden, except one. Wow, what a blessing. That's a lot of trees. But where did Satan focus? On that one. God's holding out on you. No, he's not. He's given you every other tree except this one. But Satan turns that upside down and says, it's that one you've got to have. Contentment and reflection and perspective really help us in this. Because if we think about Adam in the garden and just take perspective, God had been amazingly gracious to Adam. Every other tree on the planet is yours except this one. That was gracious. That was generous. Now, turn, if you would, from Deuteronomy 6 to Luke chapter 17. And let's look at a great application of this same principle. Luke 17. I remember reading many years ago a report that thousands of letters came to Santa Claus at a local post office in the months before Christmas. But in the weeks that followed Christmas, Santa only got one card from a, from a kid who said thanks. Thousands asking for stuff and one card saying thank you. Well, Santa wasn't the only one that got stiffed. Jesus did too. Look at Luke 17 down at verse 11. Luke 17, 11 says this, while he was on his way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him, and they raised their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Think about this for a moment. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He's passing between, so he's, in, he's on basically on the border. It's probably 
the Herod Valley there in Jerusalem, if, not Jerusalem, in uh, northern Israel. If you uh, go to Israel, you can stand there and look. There's a number of places you can go that are in this valley, but it's a big, broad valley that basically separates Samaria on the south and Galilee on the north. And Jesus was right there walking on that border, hence there was a mixed group of lepers uh, right there on the border, ten leprous men specifically, and they shout to the Lord Jesus, have mercy on us. And Jesus tells them, go show yourselves to the priest, which if you look in your margin for verse 14, it takes you to Leviticus 14, the first 32 verses there that talk about the procedure for the curing of a leper. You ever learn stuff in school that you think, I'm never going to use this? Well, every priest that had to go through Leviticus, when they got to Leviticus 14, it's like, why am I learning this? Nobody gets healed of leprosy. And yet, Jesus says, go and show yourself to the priest, because when the priest saw this, it would be a great sign to them, indeed, that the Messiah had come. And I love it. It's, he tells them to go and show themselves to the priest before they're even healed. So this required faith. And it says, as they were going, they were healed. They didn't stand there and get healed and then go. As they were going, they were cleansed. Now look at verse 15. Now one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found to return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Jesus literally asks in the Greek text, it says, but the nine, where? That's, that's what Jesus says. It's almost like he just looks around. Where? Where are the nine? Jesus wasn't amazed at the, that the one came back to thank. It's almost like, well, that's what should happen. What he's amazed is that the nine implication Jews who should know to do it, didn't do it. Jesus' amazement came not from the one who returned to thank him, but from the nine who didn't. The Mayflower journey was nothing, the difficulty of it, compared to the arduous first year of the uh, pilgrims. When they, after they landed at Plymouth Rock, their rations fell to five kernels of corn per day. I drop that much popcorn in the couch when I'm watching a movie. <laughs> five kernels of corn per day. That's what you get to eat. And they, prayed to and they prayed to survive, and obviously it was a brutal struggle. The first winter, half of them died. And after their terrible loss, they had such an incredible harvest, thanks to the Indians, uh, in 1621, that they chose to offer a week-long celebration of thanks to the Lord. 
And for them, the very first Thanksgiving came after a time of heart-wrenching loss. And I say that to remind us of that familiar story that we know because what made them so thankful was perspective. Think about what they had gone through and they gave thanks. The loss gave them incredible perspective. It seems ironic and it, it, in a way it sort of seems wrong at first. But it's true. Loss carries with it perspective that brings gratitude. I sort of had my ear up for it during our share time. And I don't know if you noticed, but, there, but most of the things, many of the things that we shared of why we're so grateful to the Lord came in a context of loss. That's often the way it works. Typically at Thanksgiving we talk about being thankful for all we have, but sometimes it's also helpful to think about what we've lost because loss carries with it a perspective that makes us grateful like few other things can. And it's because of the one simple word, perspective. Loss cultivates thankfulness uh, for your blessings. Think about it this way. The car accident that you survived makes you grateful for your family that you had a fight with earlier that morning. The unexpected or unfair job loss that you endured makes you feel immensely grateful for the new position that, you, that you've been given. The doctor's report of cancer and remission causes you to view each new day as the blessing it was to begin with. If you think about it, many movies work off this premise. You've got normal life that's kind of boring, and then a tragedy or something terrible is introduced that is solved, and now you're back to the normal boring life with a different attitude. The, the Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life, is a prime example. Nothing changed about George Bailey's life except his perspective. And that changed before that financial windfall, you know, there at the end where everybody's throwing money in the basket. What changed was his perspective. And on, honestly, it took loss to make that happen for him, and a lot of times it does for us. Matthew Henry, the Bible commentator, was robbed one day, and he wrote this that evening in his diary. He said, let me be thankful First, because I was never robbed before. Second, because all, although they took my wallet, they did not take my life. Third, because although they took my all, it wasn't much. <laughs> and finally, because it was I who was robbed and not I who robbed. Loss gave Matthew Henry a perspective he never would have had without it. I've written down a few ways that we can apply this in our lives. And so you're welcome to either jot these down or just listen really well. But here's the first one. Make it a habit, a daily habit, to thank God for something in spite of your needs. Whether you journal, whether you simply, are, it's in your prayer time, whether it's while you're driving down the road, you will find it immensely helpful to record what you're thankful for because it's so easy to get focused on the one tree 
that Satan is telling you you've got to have. And if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins and rose again, who has given you eternity with him, that's a great place to start every single day. Incidentally, that's why we're told to have communion, the Lord's Supper, on a regular basis, because it requires that we not forget. Do this, Jesus said, in remembrance of me. Just think through broad categories, God, family, work, church, and as you make your list, your outlook will change. Chuck quoted it in the, in the sermon that he gave, but let's think of it again. Remember Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with what? With gratitude, with thanksgiving. Present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. You see, when thanksgiving plays a part of our genuine prayers, it gives us a perspective that we wouldn't otherwise have, and a perspective we so desperately need when our heart envies, when Satan pushes against us to want the forbidden fruit. The Bible challenges us not to let the continual dissatisfying cycle of envy blind us to how God has blessed us already. I remember uh, a few years ago, I was working on something on my laptop, and Kathy walked in and she said, you know what, would you do me a favor this afternoon? I said, what? She said, read a book. And I thought, yeah, but I got all these boxes to check. So closed the laptop, and I was looking through our little home library, and I saw uh, Ann Voskamp's book called 1,000 Blessings, I think it's called. And I, I thought, you know, I've never read that. I think I'll read that. So I'll pull that down, and, uh, and uh, it bothered me at first because what she does is she goes through and she just basically said, look, make it a habit in your life of, of writing down blessings. And the 1,000 blessings are literally 1,000 blessings that she looked and just saw in her daily life. And what she did was she basically challenged the reader to make it a habit every day to find something and write down a blessing. And I noticed that in that perspective, what that does is it trains you to be looking for it. It's sort of like when teachers have to teach, we're constantly got our ears up looking for illustrations. I mean, I'm giving you fair warning. If you come and say hi to me, you are a potential illustration. Because we're, we're, we're attuned to it. And if you have an assignment every day in your mind, or give, it, give yourself an assignment, to look for something to be thankful for, you'll look for it. You'll be much more receptive and recognize how God has been gracious in your life. So that's the first thing. The second thing is to write a thank you note to someone or tell them personally. Think about somebody who has inspired you or encouraged you. Um, maybe somebody who has helped you, like a family member or a pastor or a friend who prayed for you when you had a special need in your life. 
or even the guy that brings you your UPS packages. Doesn't have to be somebody that you're going to reap a benefit from. In fact, even better, let it be somebody that would never expect it. I remember once at a former job, I was in the middle of a very busy day, walking through a department that I seldom put my foot in, and I saw a guy with his head down at his computer, I mean, in the zone, working. And I thought, okay, he's doing his thing. And so, and I walked out and I left. And as I was leaving, I mean, I literally had left the room. And I thought, you know, I wonder when's the last time somebody thanked him for the good work that he does. And a dozen good reasons told me to just keep walking. I, and I had, I had literally walked out of the room. But then I heard another voice. It was, it, it, I don't know, it was kind of a mix between uh, the Lord and my wife. <laughs> because Kathy's great at this. She's great at taking time for people. I'm not that great at that. I got boxes to check. And it's different temperament. It's not always a different sense of godliness, though many times it is. But it's different temperament. And I need pokes in the ribs to take time for people. And this time I, I got a poke in the rib. And, I, and there was this voice that just said, go say something. And I thought, you know what? How much time could it take? I bet it takes two minutes. So I walked over and I interrupted him, said, excuse me. And I just, I just thanked him. I said, look, you probably don't get thanked a lot. But I, I just want to genuinely thank you for what you're doing. You know, you're back, you're down here at, at, the, at the bottom of this place doing what most people probably don't thank you for. And so anyway, and it took 60 seconds. He smiled, shook my hand, and, uh, and we were done. Come to find out later, I heard through somebody else, that made his day. A simple 60-second thank you from the heart made his day. And I can think of times in my life that that has also been true. Um, why do we fail to say thank you to people who have helped us, to encouraged us? It could be that we think, you know, they probably hear that all the time. Or, like in my case, I don't, I don't really have the time to do this. Or they already know how I feel about them. Or, you know what? You're exactly right. I need to do that. I'll do that soon. Someday. Maybe tomorrow. Take the time to write a thank you note. You know, even a text is better than nothing. It really can make somebody's day. Jesus' question, but the nine, where? It exposes... Our motives as well, doesn't it? It ought to be a natural reaction when we're blessed to give thanks. And the first one that we give thanks to is to Christ, like the Samaritan did. But also we can actually give thanks to skin and bones, to people who actually need to hear it. Because believe me, they do. They really do.
Unless we watch ourselves, as Moses told the Hebrews in Deuteronomy 6, if we don't watch ourselves, we will allow our blessings to distract us from our devotion to Jesus Christ. We can get so consumed with God's blessings that we forget about God. Before we know it, we replace a devotion with the Lord with a devotion to his stuff. And in a sort of a sad, twisted irony, the blessings become our focus instead of the God who gave them. So let's look around. Let's begin to notice the things that we can be thankful for because they're everywhere. They're everywhere. And let's remember ultimately where they come from. Well, let's bow in prayer. And as we do, I want to begin by reading from the 13th chapter of the book of Hebrews, verse 15. The author writes, Through him, then, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Father, we do just take a moment and um, give thanks to you, and we are so grateful to you. Pray that you would remind us, give us that poke in the ribs, whether it's a person we need to thank or whether we simply need to bow our head on a more frequent basis, and to thank you for all the trees in the garden that we get to eat from that you have given to us. What an amazing blessing. But Father, there's nothing that we can give you thanks for more than your Son, Jesus. His gracious sacrifice on the cross to pay the penalty of all of our sins and by simply having faith, by simply believing that truth, our sins are completely removed. Thank you for that. Father, be with us this week as the world and its distractions begin to cascade upon our minds, uh, that we would not allow the world to elbow out a grateful heart. Remind us as we're uh, forced to, be, to slow down, remind us as we're on the road somewhere, or even just in the quietness of sleeping in, where we wake up and stare at the ceiling and have a moment just to think. Let it be a time of prayer, a time of gratitude. As the author of the Hebrews wrote, we just want to apply this sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.